it is still the case that rampant discrimination is faced by many transgender people in this country. That's something that I think there's a growing understanding that it is deeply problematic from a moral perspective to have in our society. Yeah, the gray areas that we're concerned about really are the, the definitions of gender identity in both the proposed legislation in Massachusetts as well as I think the law in Charlotte and it seems to be sort of the same type of definitions throughout the country with these types of bills. And that is that the definitions of gender identity are extremely broad. They don't require any sort of medical or psychological diagnosis or treatment or hormone therapies or surgery or anything. It's all based on someone's inner feelings. It's clear that transgender people and lesbian, gay, and bisexual people are the subjects of a lot of stereotyping, bias, and discrimination similar to other groups throughout history that have been minority groups that have been unpopular. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also another one called Media Law. I also co-host another show on the Legal Talk Network called Law Technology Now with Monica Bay. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. North Carolina's House Bill 2, which has come to be known as the bathroom law, has taken center stage and created quite a bit of controversy. On March 23rd, Governor Pat McCrory signed the Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, which is House Bill 2. The law bans people from using bathrooms that don't match the sex indicated on their birth certificates, which opponents argue is discriminatory toward the transgender community. Well, Bob, supporters of the new law say it is a safety and privacy issue protecting women and children from men who use the law as a pretense to deliberately enter the wrong restroom. Legislation involving the transgender community is not only happening in the state of North Carolina, as we've heard, but also Mississippi and Tennessee have pushed similar legislation. And even here in Massachusetts, there's a bill that's being described as the bathroom bill. It's a bill that would take the opposite tack from North Carolina and expand protections under the law for transgender people. But again, the debate is kind of focusing on this bathroom issue. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at North Carolina's controversy and take it nationwide as well and look for a reaction, talk about some of the legal issues here and the quest for equal rights for the transgender community. Well, Bob, our first guest today is Iona. She is the legal director at the Transgender Law Center. Iona was a staff attorney at the National Center for Lesbian Rights, where her work frequently focused on issues affecting transgender clients. She previously practiced law at Cohen, Weiss, and Simon in New York City, representing unions, union-run health and retirement plans, as well as employees. In the early 2000s, she worked as a lobbyist for Equality California, where she helped to shepherd groundbreaking legislation that prohibited housing and employment discrimination against transgender people and dramatically expanded the rights of domestic partners in California. Welcome to the show, Iona. Thanks so much for having me. And joining us also today is Andrew Beckwith. Andrew is president of the Massachusetts Family Institute, a nonpartisan public policy organization dedicated to strengthening families in Massachusetts. 
Andrew is a graduate of Gordon College and the University of Minnesota Law School and serves as a judge advocate in the United States Marine Corps Reserve, where he holds the rank of major. He's also served as an immigration attorney for the Boston Office of the Department of Homeland Security. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Andrew Beckwith. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. And Bob, our final guest today is Professor Katie Iyer from Rutgers Law School. Katie joined the Rutgers Law faculty as an assistant professor in June 2012. She also litigated civil rights cases prior to ending academia full-time and secured a number of precedents in the Third Circuit, expanding the legal rights of LGBT and disabled employees, including Prowl versus Wise Business Forms and Miller versus American Airlines. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Katie, since you're the uh, since you're the professor on the panel, <laughs> maybe we could start with you and ask if you could just kind of lay out for us what's happened in North Carolina that's given rise to all this controversy. Sure. Um, so I'd be happy to talk a little bit about that. So this all started, of course, with a local ordinance in Charlotte, North Carolina. The local ordinance in Charlotte had actually existed for many years, protecting a variety of groups against discrimination in public accommodations and in a number of other domains. What happened in February of this year is that it was amended to include protections for the LGBT community, and that happened in February of this year. And within a month, the legislature in North Carolina, the state legislature, had called a special session to essentially overturn this ordinance, but actually went much, much farther in the law that they ultimately enacted. Um, So within a month, um, they had enacted a law that not only made clear that localities cannot afford protections of these kinds to LGBT individuals, but that, you know, as alluded to in the introduction to the show, quite explicitly addressed this issue issue of who can use what restroom um, made it clear that that's going to be dependent on what sex is indicated on the birth certificate, which for many transgender people means that they would not be able to use a gender identity appropriate restroom. It actually also addressed a whole sort of grab bag of other issues as well, making clear that local living wage laws and the like would not be allowed any longer, as well as withdrawing existing claims that could be brought under state anti-discrimination law for all protected classes prior to this time. So that was what went through in March, and that's the law that we're talking about here today. Ilona Turner, this is being characterized as a civil rights issue, and I've seen you know people analogizing to the bathroom laws that were common in the Jim Crow era. What makes this, assuming you agree with that proposition, this is a civil rights issue, what makes this a civil rights issue? Sure. Well, for one thing, as Katie was mentioning, the state legislature here acted to overturn the Charlotte non-discrimination measure that they had enacted. So that's explicitly, you know, civil rights protections that were being rolled back. But more broadly, it's clear that transgender people and lesbian, gay and bisexual people are the subjects of a lot of stereotyping, bias, and discrimination similar to other groups throughout history that have been minority groups that have been unpopular in terms of the majority in that place and time. And I think this is part of why, for instance, the NAACP in North Carolina has been out there on the forefront calling for the repeal of this law. In fact, they're talking about doing a sit-in at the state legislature if the bill is not repealed. A number of courts now have made the connection, the analogy to restroom segregation rules and laws in the 1960s and earlier. This really is about 
people feeling uncomfortable with somebody who may be different from them in the restroom. And that's just not something that our laws can give credence to. And Andrew, what does the Massachusetts Family Institute take on this position? Sure. Our concern has been for years, uh, this has been sort of in play in Massachusetts for a while now, really about the privacy rights and safety, particularly women and children. And our position is that, look, biology matters and anatomy matters. And we have here in Massachusetts, I'm sure in, in most states, laws that specifically exempt bathrooms, locker rooms, facilities like that from uh, sex discrimination or sex non-discrimination laws because the law recognizes that you know, biology does matter in these intimate places. And so we would say, look, where there is, there's not a rational basis to exclude someone from a restroom on the basis of their skin color, right? Because skin color, race has no you know, moral or really practical consequence. But this is distinct because we're talking about anatomy and biology, which do have consequences. And so there is a rational basis to say that you know, biological males use the men's room, biological females use the women's room. And you have, I think, very, really concrete privacy rights of, for example, women who have a right not to have to change in front of a biological male, regardless of how the biological male identifies. And we have seen incidents uh, throughout the country, a couple recently in Washington state, where you have biological males who utilize the so bathroom laws, gender identity laws in place in that state to undress in women's locker rooms, both cases in front of underage girls. And so that's obviously a concern. So we believe that uh, this is not a civil rights issue. I have a young Haitian-American attorney on my staff, and he very much takes issue with the comparison to you know, the Jim Crow segregation-type arguments because this is just a very different type of issue and ultimately, we're concerned about privacy and safety. Andrew, does your opinion change if there has been a biological change in the former man that is now a woman or the former woman that is now a man? Well, that's the track that they took in the North Carolina law was that in order for a person to use the women's room, they have to go by what's on their birth certificates, and the birth certificate is contingent upon having you know, full transition surgery if they were born as a male and have male genitalia. You know, we haven't had to cross that bridge yet here in Massachusetts, and I think we have a different scenario because I think the birth certificate in Massachusetts can be changed without surgery. So if we got to that point, you know, where someone has had a full transition, that probably makes the most sense for them to use the bathroom that's then consistent with their anatomy. Katie, would a third restroom or a third facility solve this issue so that we have a neutral and a male and a female? I come from a background of employment discrimination and in that context sometimes provided advice to employers on how to deal with these issues. And certainly having a gender neutral restroom is a good alternative for lots of reasons, both for transgender individuals who may desire to use it, but also for those who may be, for example, uncomfortable with using the restroom with another person for any reason, for families who may need access to a gender-neutral restroom. But I would say it certainly doesn't solve the problem altogether because it singles out and stigmatizes transgender individuals for them not to be able to use a restroom consistent with their gender identity. Often, even if there is a gender-neutral restroom in the workplace, it may not be conveniently located. It may be sometimes even in a different building. And there's lots of 
reasons why it should not be the case that a transgender individual is compelled to use that type of facility. Let me just say, uh, Andrew mentioned the issues of privacy and safety. I think that those who advocate for transgender equality are also very much concerned with those issues, but there are issues of privacy and safety for transgender people as well. Um, And I think if you look at the broad history of this issue, this is an issue that is not new, that's been around for many, many years. It has consistently been shown that it is transgender people who experience violence and uh, invasions of their privacy in these sex-segregated context and not the case that they are the ones perpetrating victimization. My understanding is that there are already laws on the books uh, in some states uh, prohibiting public facility discrimination. Do we have a track record from those states? Do we have any evidence? Has there been any studies uh, of whether, in fact, harassment or voyeurism or, or any other such thing has been a problem in those states? Yeah, there are around 19 states and the District of Columbia that have explicit non-discrimination laws that protect transgender people from discrimination in the workplace, at schools. But there is absolutely no evidence or record of any incidents where a transgender person harasses or assaults or anything like that another person in the restroom or locker room. It just doesn't happen. It's a, a fiction Invented by the other side. That's that's this is Andrew. okay. I'd like that I'd be interested to, to see the to talk about any examples of that. So, right, in 2010, here in Boston, uh, there was a man who identified as female who went to a women's shelter in the Boston area and went into the women's bathroom. And despite the protestations of the biological women who were in the shelter, perhaps many of them victims of abuse at the hands of men. He refused to leave the bathroom and eventually had to be escorted out by police. Now, he later sued and won a judgment from the city of Boston for about $20,000 because the city of Boston already has a municipal code that enforces a gender identity bathroom ordinance. But there you had you know, probably some of the most vulnerable members of society, women in a, in a homeless shelter, and they clearly felt unsafe and were disturbed by the presence of an anatomical male in a bathroom and he refused to leave. In 2012... In Washington State, you had a man who identifies as a female lesbian who was in the sauna of a locker room at a local college where a high school girl's swim team was practicing. And the high school girls, so probably under the age of 18, are in the locker room and they see what is clearly an anatomical male naked in the sauna. And they complain uh, and they're told he has every right to be there and that they shouldn't be complaining. So that's just two examples, you know, off the top of my head where this creates real privacy concerns, modesty concerns for women and puts them in fear of their safety. We can return to this in just a second. We do need to take a short break at this point in the program. So please stay with us and we will be right back after this word from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. 
And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and we are speaking with our guests, Ilona Turner, the legal director of the Transgender Law Center in Oakland, California, Andrew Beckwith, president of the Massachusetts Family Institute, and Katie Ayer of Rutgers Law School. Andrew, you were just talking about instances where you feel that allowing transgender people into public facilities has caused instances. I wanted to ask you what your response is to the other side of that, because I've also read of instances where transgender individuals have been subjected to harassment using the facilities expected by their biology. That can give rise to uh, uncomfortable and situations and harassment as well. So what should happen in those cases? I mean, no one should be harassed when they're using the bathroom, the locker room, and everyone should have their privacy rights intact. As one of the other guests mentioned, the idea of sort of gender neutral sort of single use bathroom. Sometimes they'll have a you know, family bathroom if you have to change your baby or something like that, or, or someone needs assistance. So there quite often is a sort of a third option that allows everyone to have privacy because there's really only room for one person in there. And I think the common sense approach, and this was sort of recommended if you read through the language of the North Carolina bill, to, to make accommodation for people who have special circumstances. And I think looking at individuals who suffer from gender dysphoria, a relatively small percentage of the population, I think less than point three percent and the hope is that we can make accommodation for people who have special concerns like that and i think a very common sense one would be a, a gender neutral bathroom or single-use bathroom that would really protect their privacy and that of everyone else in these circumstances what is the status of the north carolina legislation at this point i know that uh, there has been talk of lawsuits being filed against it i don't know whether in fact there have been any yet i can respond to that Yeah, so there has been a lawsuit filed by um, Lambda Legal and the ACLU challenging the North Carolina law on a number of grounds, um, including under equal protection, due process, as well as under Title IX, which is federal law prohibiting sex discrimination in education. Here in Massachusetts, we have a very different situation right now. I know that Andrew is based here in Massachusetts, where there was a transgender rights bill already on the books, uh, which is, as I understand it, that bill did not extend to public facilities discrimination. So now there is a bill pending which would extend the anti-discrimination provisions to public facilities. Andrew, your organization has been active in speaking out against that here in Massachusetts. If that bill were to become law, would you see yourself as challenging that? Uh, well, we'd definitely take a look at that if that would be a viable way to challenge it. Even the courts here in Massachusetts in the First Circuit, we might instead try a, a referendum, uh, like I think they're doing now in Washington State as well, to allow the people to vote, because our belief is that the majority of citizens in Massachusetts don't want this bill. The majority of the legislature didn't want to include public accommodations, specifically bathrooms and restrooms, which is why they actually took that out of 
the legislation that was passed in 2011 initially had public accommodations, and they removed that because of the concerns over bathrooms and locker rooms. And my understanding is that a sufficient number of the legislators here in Massachusetts still have enough concerns over the you know, privacy and safety rights of individuals that would be impacted that uh, the bill has been stuck in committee, and we hope that it stays there. Alona, what are the What's the impact on the transgender community of laws such as this? Uh, I saw an article, I think it was in the Washington Post just today, talking about the the psychological impact on people who identify as transgender of this kind of legislation. Have you seen that in your practice and what have you seen? Yeah, absolutely. These kinds of laws clearly single out transgender people you know, for different treatment, um, essentially declaring that they are kind of outside the law, not entitled to the same treatment as everybody else. It also, on a practical level, subjects them to daily scrutiny as well as harassment and even violence when simply trying to use the restroom. And not just transgender people, but anybody who's perceived as gender nonconforming. I mean, any woman who has short hair or otherwise, you know, might look gender nonconforming in any way, will know the experience of having been looked at funny in the women's restroom or asked, are you in the right restroom? And with laws like this going into effect, that will increase exponentially and creates an environment where everyone feels entitled to police everyone else's gender. And that, that affects not just transgender people, but all of us. One of the uh, issues that uh, I find kind of difficult to understand here is the biology, I guess, in a sense. And I'm certainly no expert in this, but from what I have read, it seems to me that the biology is not just about what sex organs you're born with. Biology seems to be something that is far beyond that. So when we're talking about what biological gender somebody is born with, it seems to be a lot more complicated than just their sex organs. And some people are born with sexual anatomy that, that doesn't quite fit the definition of male or female. So how do these laws deal with that issue? Yeah, that's a great question. The science is actually evolving quite a bit on this, and a number of courts have addressed this as well in uh, decisions around transgender rights. And in fact, sex and gender, these are not the cut and dried issues of, you know, it's obvious whether someone is male or female as we might have previously thought that it was. There are, in fact, a number of factors that make up sex, including chromosomes and external genitalia and internal reproductive organs, as well as a person's gender identity, their understanding of themselves as male or female. And a number of folks in the scientific and medical community are coming to believe that it is gender identity that is the most critical of those factors, so that a person's gender identity really determines what their sex is in a fundamental way. Andrew, what is your position on that? I mean, there are these, there are gray areas here, I guess is what I'm saying. And and how should, uh, how do you feel that these gray areas should be treated under the law? Yeah, the gray areas that we're concerned about really are the, the definitions of gender identity in the proposed legislation in Massachusetts, as well as I think the law in Charlotte, and it seems to be sort of the same type of definitions throughout the country with these types of bills. And that is that the definitions of gender identity are extremely broad. They don't require any sort of medical or psychological diagnosis or treatment or hormone therapies or surgery or anything. It's all based on someone's inner feelings. 
So it'd be very hard to enforce, and that's why you see these individuals who claim to be you know, trans female, you get the proper terminology, but they're biological men going into women's dressing rooms and exploiting these laws, whether if they're just doing it as folks with gender identity issues or abusing them, it's, it's unclear because it's very hard to nail down you know, what exactly someone's gender identity is because it boils down to what their internal feelings are. But what's black and white is that if you take a guy like Bruce Jenner, I know he calls himself Caitlin now, but as far as I understand, he is still an intact male, and he did win the men's decathlon, so I think I can call him a male. If he walks into a locker room at the local Y where my wife and her daughter are changing, they're going to be exposed to his male genitalia regardless of what he looks like on the cover of Vanity Fair or what he calls himself, the name of his TV show, he is still an intact biological male with an XY chromosome. And so that's a problem for privacy and also potentially for safety for the vast majority of women and children. Now, there may be some instances where people have, and there are some instances where people have, you know, some congenital deformities in their genitalia. And By all means, medical professionals should take whatever steps they can to correct that and ameliorate that and mitigate it. But that's not what these laws talk about. These laws talk about people's internal feelings and upend millennia of, you know, social mores in order to accommodate what is a very radical and modern new gender theory. And it it puts the the basic rights of privacy at risk for millions of women and children. I actually think Andrew makes a good point about that there are a variety of bodies, you know, great diversity of bodies, even among men and among women. And we would never expect that it would be practical for the government to go around inspecting what everybody's bodies look like before they can use a restroom or locker room, or even to inspect someone's birth certificate. That's not something that they are realistically going to do for everybody. And it is, you know, by definition, discriminatory just to single out people who might look gender nonconforming or people who are perceived as transgender for that kind of additional scrutiny or exclusion. Well, but he's making a very specific point. I mean, this is the one we we keep hearing in this debate of somebody with male genitalia going into a female locker room where there are women and possibly uh, young women or girls in the locker room. What's the response to that? I mean, should that be appropriate and how should that be handled under the law? This is Katie. Could I just add, you know, I think what has largely been the focus of the conversation, it's something that we've heard for years and years and years whenever there are efforts to enact anti-discrimination protections for transgender people. But if you take a look at what the North Carolina legislature actually did here, it went much, much, much farther than that specific concern. This is not a circumstance where we have the North Carolina legislature enacting anti-discrimination protections for transgender people, but saying where uh, there is unavoidable nudity, we're going to take some steps to ensure the privacy of everybody concerned. It's simply, to my ears, impossible to take seriously that articulated concern when the individuals and the government entities that are putting it forward are unwilling to take any steps to ensure transgender equality more broadly and indeed are typically taking steps to entirely eradicate such laws. Um, So again, to me, this is really a red herring in the debate over transgender equality issues. Um, It's simply not doing the work that it is suggested to do. 
I agree 100% with you that this is a red herring. And yet it seems that everywhere the debate comes up, this is what it ends up focusing on. And again, even here in Massachusetts, where there's a, the bill is not at all a bathroom bill, I don't think, or certainly not by its explicit terms. It's a public facilities bill, but it's being defined that way. No, it's explicitly a bathroom bill because it specifically eliminates the exemption under existing Massachusetts law from sex discrimination statutes. Public facilities, of, yeah. But, well, yeah, bathrooms, restrooms, so it specifically targets bathrooms. And this issue is not a red herring to the homeless women who were uncomfortable with a man in their bathroom or to the high school girls who felt their privacy was violated by the biological man sitting in the sauna. So there are obviously an array of other areas where this type of legislation would impact the lives of individuals, but this is where the rubber hits the road, and we do have circumstances of where it's caused real concern to real people. So to call it a red herring, I think, is, is disingenuous. Well, uh, let me ask you, Andrew, would the Massachusetts Family Institute support the Massachusetts legislation if it carved out the circumstance of context avoiding where there's, for example, locker rooms, unavoidable nudity, where they then support enacting gender identity inclusive statewide legislation? I mean, that's what the status of the current law really is, because you've got already education, hiring, housing, and finance are covered. Public accommodations aren't specifically covered, but under the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, they've already claims of transgender discrimination in, I think there's a case with a restaurant, another case with a hospital. So, And so does the, the Massachusetts Family Institute support that? We don't believe anyone should be discriminated against. Now, we have different understandings of whether gender identity is an immutable characteristic that should be added to that list of protected categories in the same way that you know race and sex and, and creed are. But our primary concern in this situation is one of, of privacy and safety. So if there was some way of addressing that, uh, we'd be certainly interested in taking a look at it. But we believe that the bill in Massachusetts as it currently stands under existing law, the way it's practiced, is unnecessary, is redundant except for bathrooms. So the net change that this bill would pass would be the bathrooms in the locker room. Right now, Massachusetts law does not prohibit it prohibits uh, discrimination in employment and certain other characteristics, but not, you know, it's still the case that in theory, a restaurant could prohibit a transgender person from eating there as a customer while they couldn't prohibit them from working there as an employee. Isn't that the case? I mean, a restaurant could take those steps right now and whether the law is passed or not, they're going to have to go straight to MCAD, Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, with a, a claim. Yeah, they might have a fight, but the law does not expressly protect them now. Under well, but they're, they're getting protects from MCAD, so the functional state of the law right now is that those people are covered. There was a transgender man, right? So a woman who was under testosterone treatments, had her breasts removed, who wanted to be artificially inseminated by a hospital in Boston. And that hospital said, look, we're just not sure we have the expertise, given what you've been through hormonally, to do this. Can we refer you to the hospital? They got sued under MCAD by that trans man, biological woman transitioning for discrimination and settled. And that's a pretty extreme case. And I, I think most people would say that the hospital was in their rights to professionally say, we don't think we're qualified to handle this rather unique situation where you had a biological woman who was under you know, years of testosterone treatments uh, and then wanted to be artificially inseminated as, I guess, a woman. But they got sued and caved to MCAD. And that's without public accommodations law. M MCAD being the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination. I'm afraid that we're running very low on time. We're actually over our time. And uh, I do want to give each of you an opportunity to give us your closing thoughts before we wrap up. And as we do that, I also would invite you to let our listeners know how they can 
follow up with you and learn more about your work in this area. So Ilona Turner, Legal Director of Transgender Law Center, why don't we start with you? Sure. Thank you. You know, I think the recent cases that Andrew is talking about actually point to the really important and positive flip side of this recent negative attention towards transgender people, which is that there have been huge strides recently, both in public understanding and legal protections for transgender people under both state and federal laws across the country with, you know, figures on TV coming out and more transgender people coming out to people in their own lives. This issue is becoming understandable. People are getting to understand what it means to be transgender and who transgender people are. And that kind of fear that existed previously is really melting away. And so that's why um, we are confident that this understanding is just going to keep growing. And hopefully soon we won't see these kinds of laws being introduced anymore. Thanks. And what's a good way for our listeners to learn more about the work you're doing? Sure. Uh, They can just go to our website, transgenderlawcenter.org. All right. Thank you. Uh, And Andrew Breckwith, president of the Massachusetts Family Institute, uh, your closing thoughts. Sure. We believe that everyone has a right to privacy, particularly in intimate spaces, and a right to feel safe when they're changing at the Y or in the locker room at college or school. And these sort of bathroom bill type laws have a very broad definition of gender identity. It's been shown time and again already in places where they've been enacted that they're very easy to exploit by those who would exploit them to gain access, particularly to women and children in intimate settings, and that they unfortunately create a zero-sum game of privacy rights where we take one group of individuals, in this case folks who suffer from gender dysphoria, and say that their right to privacy and comfort trumps that of everyone else. And it's an unfortunate circumstance, but it's really a zero-sum game of privacy rights. And I think the best way to handle this is to accommodate those people with special circumstances with gender identity issues in probably single-use facilities, which is what's laid out in the North Carolina law, which is a common-sense solution to this growing problem. Thank you. And what's a good way for our listeners to follow up with you? Sure, you can reach us at our website, ma, as in Massachusetts, mafamily.org, mafamily.org. Thank you very much. Katie Ayer, your Rutgers Law School, you are the uh, you get the final word today. All right, thank you. So I would conclude just by noting, you know, the laws that we've been talking about here today, laws like the recently enacted law in North Carolina, similar laws enacted around the country in places like Mississippi. They are laws that are both legally and practically speaking, deeply problematic from the perspective of transgender rights specifically and LGBT rights more generally. I would also say, however, that I hope listeners do not lose track of ensuring that as a baseline measure, all LGBT individuals have uh, clear and comprehensive anti-discrimination protections, quite aside from these issues of restroom access and locker room access that we've been talking about here on the show. As Alona has alluded to in her closing remarks, there have been any number of positive developments, both legislative and in the case law, in providing protections but it is still the case that rampant discrimination is faced by many transgender people in this country. That's something that I think there's a growing understanding that it is deeply problematic from a moral perspective to have in our society. And I can be reached at my Rutgers Law website uh, or via email or my telephone number on that website. Well, thank you very much to all, all of you for taking the time to be with us today. This is a really interesting discussion. We really appreciate your time and your thoughts on this 
That brings us to the end of this show. This is Bob Ambrogi on behalf of Craig Williams and everybody at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening and please join us next time for another great legal topic when you want legal think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.